You got an extra. So if you want it, you can take it. We're going to go from Genesis chapter 4 into Genesis chapter 5, looking at the genealogies that are presented here. Um, I have a little chart here that I started to do. Um, first, as a, um, a uh, primer here, genealogies. How many of you read through genealogies in the Bible, or, or how many of you have actually skipped them? Skip, I skip Skip, scan. Okay, you go to these genealogies like, oh, it's why on earth did God, why on earth did God put these here? You know, what is the purpose of it? Well, there's a few different reasons, um, but one of the, the main reasons, of course, is Genesis 3.15 was an amazing prophecy um, that God utter, uh, um, speaks over Eve and uh, to Satan, actually, in the garden. And that, of course, is that the Messiah is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And so as we go through the biblical revelation in the Old Testament, we see more specifics about the Messiah, what he's going to do and where he's going to come from. From And one of the very important aspects of Jesus as Messiah is he had to be born as a Jew from the line of the tribe of Judah, and it had to be traced right through King David's lineage and going right back, right? So if we don't have a genealogical record, then we can't prove that Christ actually fulfilled the necessary prophecies to state that he was the only promised Messiah. So genealogies are extremely important. So it can be kind of boring in one sense, but it's extremely important. So that's why God, by, through the Holy Spirit, has inspired men to write down these genealogies. So that's one primary important reason why we're going to look at genealogies, okay? Another interesting thing to look at with the genealogies is... Um, when we see in Scripture, we see that as man, <clears throat> when he was created in the Garden of Eden, he's kicked out of the Garden of Eden, then we see um, uh, this path where there's kind of two roads, okay? You have two roads. One road is, go is broad and, and, and wide, and that leads to death, right? And the narrow road is what Christ has done for us. He's placed this, he's made us alive, he's placed us on this narrow road to heaven, right? This narrow road in a relationship with him. And these two roads actually diverge. From Adam. And we're going to look at these two genealogies where one goes through the, the um, vegetarian line of Cain. <laughs> you, you, you brought it up. Because <laughs> remember, Cain offered the, the fruit of the, of the land instead of Abel's good sacrifice, which was some tasty meat that he was barbecuing. But um, so anyway, uh, so we have, we've got this line go through Cain, and we're going to look at that in chapter 4. And then we have a line that comes through Seth which is this line of people that were, were apparently more godly. And through this line, we see the Messiah come, okay, through Cain. And this line is a little bit crazy. And we're going to look at some of these descendants in a bit. But here you have these two roads, right? And in one road, God, in a sense, is allowing man all of the free choice he has to sin as much as he desires. Let me go back to that. All the free choice he has to sin as much as their heart desires. Now, men are free to choose evil for the most part. They're in bondage to their evil nature for those who are not saved. But they still have some degree of autonomy within the bondage of their will to sin. But that autonomy never extends to making themselves born again, never making themselves see truth, and never being able to recognize the voice of God. That only happens through a supernatural sovereign work of God, in which he gives us Romans chapter 10, and blast it, you just all of a sudden see these things, right? As, as um, uh, 
as Sam was sharing with us today, what's that? Chapter 8. Chapter 8, thank you. 8, verse 10, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, um, as Brother Sam was sharing today, and so God then allows man all this freedom in many senses to choose and sin as much as he desires. God does not cause man to sin, okay? He doesn't make them sin. So they're doing these, making these decisions, and somehow God is working out, according to his sovereignty, that different things are going to show up in history. And different kings are going to be raised up who are evil, wicked, like Pharaoh. But God's going to use these men for his glory, right? And then we have this other um, area where men have been redeemed by God. God has, in his divine counsel, in the future, has said, I'm going to save these people. I'm going to go further in my work of grace with them than what's happening over here. And to be sure, God has given some common grace to everybody, to everyone on the planet. When you see uh, parents enjoying the blessing of their children, that's God's common grace. The scripture says that God caused the rain to fall upon the evil and the good, okay? And so there are blessings that come to this everyone that's born of flesh, okay? But the unique blessing that God has done with his people is he has done certain specific works to bring us to salvation. So we're going to look at some of these names in this genealogy, all right? So that's the slight introduction um, for a really good, um, some good early 80s rock. Go to Daniel Band. There's only two roads which are you going to travel on. So good. Okay, I know I can't sing, but I can't, but I'm doing these things. In my head, I'm thinking these songs from the 80s that ministered to me so much, but um, cool band. I was going to quote some of the lines and have Jared and Luke sing with me, but that's yeah. right. But uh, no, not going to do that. But anyway, um, two roads which you're going to travel. And um, by God's grace, he has worked this out, worked it out that we're traveling down his path, which is pretty awesome. So, Genesis chapter 4, I'm, if you've got your timelines handy, I'm going to show you some stuff real quick. And then we're actually going to get into the text and read through it. Okay, so you've got these timelines. Uh, one thing that I really, that we love to emphasize here in our fellowship is a, a good, strong apologetic. You know, we want to be able to think deeply and reason through the scriptures um, to see why God's word makes perfect sense. Okay, And one thing um, that is challenging is looking at the ages of how long these pre, or what we call antediluvian, here's a new theological term, antediluvian, there are those who, who lived before the flood, how long the antediluvian lives were, many of which were extended past 900 years. And, and um, through their long life, which is what this chart is right here, we can see some really, really interesting things take place, okay? And so I'm going to highlight some of those for you. So here we have Adam, Abel. They have Abel and Cain. Of course, Cain um, kills Abel, so poor Abel's out of the picture. And then Cain has some pretty nasty uh, ancestors. We'll get to that in a little bit. But um, this one here is the genealogy through Seth, which was Adam and Eve's son of promise, okay? And so we see at the top here, Seth, or is that Adam at the top? Adam at the top, followed by Seth. Now look at how these things, how these lives line up, okay? So I actually, in mine right here, I put some little circles here because I wanted to see where they line up in relation to Noah, okay? So if we look at Noah, which is at the bottom here, your bottom of, of the bar graph, Noah is born 126 years after, guess who died? Adam. Adam. 126 years. Noah. Okay? And so this is, you know, um, 
it takes place the Adam or Noah was born in 1056. Okay, and um, so it was only 126 years that Noah goes all the way down here. So when Noah goes into the flood, okay, and comes through the flood, and he has his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Then they begin to pass, and they go into the world. They're passing on all the information that came from their dad, who was only 150 years removed from the first man created. So, why am I bringing this up? The information and the history that these antediluvians had was very easy to be passed on. Now, at, the, at their long-lived long -lived ages... It presupposes that they were uh, far superior physically than we are, which would include their mental acuity, right? So these guys were pretty bright. They were very bright. You know, there's no reason to assume that they were Cro-Magnon men or any of these um, huge leaps of faith we have to take with the, um, the fossil record, especially in regards to men. It's just it's so fanciful, right? So I don't want to go down that trail for now. But they had this um, brilliant minds, long-lived, and they had these conversations, and so 126 years, that's amazing, which means that if we go back um, one genealogy up to Lamech, okay, and there's two Lamechs in Scripture, don't get confused, okay? So two Lamechs, um, and um, yeah, so this is the good Lamech who is in the line of Seth, okay? So Lamech would be uh, Noah's father, and Lamech lived to be... 56, let's see, 56 years. Uh, Lamech was alive for 56 years until Adam died. So that means Lamech would have been conversational, could have been conversational with Adam. So Noah's father, for five decades, could have had conversations with Adam. And this wild stuff, when you start lining these genealogies up. So when we look at these long ages and we think, oh, it happened so long ago. How could this information ever be passed down correctly? And you get all these questions. It's really not that unrealistic. It's actually quite realistic. So uh, some really fascinating things, the way all of these line up. Um, I'm going to bounce around just a little bit before I actually kind of get into the flow of the sermon kind of aspect, guys. So bear with me if it seems a little bit bouncing around, but I just want to give you some information and tie it together as I'm reading the scriptures. Um, let's see here. Okay. With having said that, let's open to, to uh, Genesis chapter 4 and we'll start reading. Now, there are, as I said, we're going to look at two specific genealogies, one going through Cain, we call them the Cainites, and two, and the second one going through Seth, we call the Sethites. So here's the, the ones of promise, and here are the ones that we find de degrade very quickly in uh, their behavior, um, just like their father, their grandfather and great-grandfather Cain. So, so, Genesis chapter 4, we'll start in verse, um, just for the sake of context, um, Tim did a great job teaching in Cain and Abel, but I'm going to kind of go and, and keep the context of this um, first murder and, and keep this feeling, this emotion part of the text and bring it down through Cain's line, okay? So we're going to start in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. I, am I my brother's keeper? And he, and he said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain is like, he's not repentant. He's upset that the Lord is being harsh with him. He just killed his brother. So right from the beginning, we don't see much of a godly line coming here, right? We don't see too much repentance from Cain. So he's just complaining that God has made it too hard on him. Um, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. God is being gracious in one sense to Cain. And in another sense, it's wild. He's got this sign, which is always a, 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 a symbol of Cain's sin. He murders his brother. And then Cain went out, went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word Nod means, means wandering or wanderer. So he settles east of Eden, moves a little bit further outside of the garden, and he begins to come into this land of Nod. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. This is not the other Enoch that we see in this line here, okay? So Cain has Enoch. Now this is the bad Enoch. And then we got a good Enoch coming over here. We're going to talk about him for a little bit too. Um, so bad Enoch. And, and he builds a city. And he calls the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. I wondered if I should do like proper Hebrew pronunciation. I was going through this, so should I? Lamech. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah. Nah. laughs> we'll, we'll transliterate it into English. Okay. So Lamech took to himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And then we're going to get into Lamech. In a second, verse 23. One you'll notice here with this genealogy that comes from Cain is we don't see anyone calling on the name of the Lord. We don't see any kind of indication necessarily that they were going to be following Christ. When we look at Seth, we're going to look at a scripture where um, an individual said, scripture says that they then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And we see it traced to Noah and this lineage, godly lineage being passed down from person to person. Now having said that, okay, there's no... I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. There's no guarantee here that because God uh, started with Seth, that everyone in this lineage was redeemed, that they were truly believing the promises of God, that they were actually saved, okay? And God doesn't promise us just because we homeschool our children and we've got them in the best church and, and all these other things that suddenly they're going to come out as these perfect children who are all born again, okay? That's God's sovereign work. So as I'm going through this, I'm not saying that there's this is how God... It has this cookie-cutter way of doing things. And certainly within this line of Cain, we would believe that some had been redeemed. 
However, we do see, as I was saying before, there is these two paths in which God tends to work with people, right? And the people that God is working through, through Seth, that become the Jews, and that start with Abraham, or Abram, that he calls them to follow him, is unique, okay? So, um, looking at this line now, I'm going to go back and look at some of these guys, in uh, going back to verse... Um, 18. Now, to Enoch was born Irad. Irad became the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took to himself two wives. Two wives. So, this is the first instance we see in Scripture where someone becomes a polygamist. Notice God did not give him two wives. There's nothing in the text that indicates whatsoever that God endorses polygamy. Now, um, we, there's a bunch of scriptures, especially as we go into the New Testament, that specifically forbid polygamy. One, in, we read that one of the qualifications of an elder is that they have to be the husband of one wife. Romans chapter 7 uh, declares explicitly that um, Paul says you're bound to one another as husband and wife, and you cannot break that bond of marriage if you do, and through un for unbiblical reasons, and you commit adultery. And you force the person that you commit adultery with to be an adulterer as well. So that's, it's really clear. Um, when God created Adam and Eve, he said they two shall be one flesh. You know, not one and a half fleshes or two fleshes, just one flesh. So the scripture is really clear, okay, about polygamy not being endorsed by God. Having said that, we can look at the history of these patriarchs, Abram being one of them, who took Hagar to have a child with. And then David had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives. And then we scratch our head and go, wait a minute. Didn't God say that Solomon was the wisest man on the, of all the earth? Didn't God say that David was the apple of his eye? Yeah, God uses sinners. And it's interesting that God had, in a sense, um, he didn't overlook the sin of polygamy, but he wasn't as harsh for some reason in, in the rebuke of those men that took multiple wives. And we could spend a lot of time going, why on earth was that? Well, Jesus includes us in a little bit of that, a little bit in, in that department. When he rebuked the Pharisees in the New Testament, and Jesus talking to them and says, Moses allowed, or God allows you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. So in some ways, God says, look, your sin as man is really pretty rough and pretty heavy. So much so that there are certain ways in which your sin is going to be, I don't want to say, allowed to continue. I want to be careful how I'm saying this. But the hardest, there's certain things that we've committed that God is not, in, for whatever reason, and his divine purposes, has not saw fit to bring a greater degree of judgment against it. And that, that's all I can say there, okay? I'm not, I don't want to go too deep and go far beyond what the scripture teaches, Okay, but clearly when Jesus said, because your heart is your heart, God allowed it. And we can even go into Romans and speak God's, I'm not going to go down that road too much. But polygamy was not endorsed by God. It's quite clear in scripture. Okay, and there's um, even some instances where God blessed men in the midst of their polygamy. But it's not because of the polygamy. It was in, uh, in spite of their sin. Okay. So the Bible does not endorse polygamy. Lamech is the first man to say that he was going to take two wives. And the scripture goes to name their names. He, one was Ada, the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So here 
the scripture begins to give us um, an indication of where things began to be uh, centered, okay, and where some of these uh, uh, inventors and so on and so forth coming from this line began to establish some interesting patterns. And so one of which is, here we have J, uh, uh, Jabel, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So they began to be nomadic. And so there was a nomadic thing happening here, and they're carrying the livestock with them. In verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. So this guy was a musician. So he was um, creating some, obviously, some pretty fine instruments. That's not to say that there wasn't any kind of musical instrumentation prior to that. But there was something unique about these guys that created a certain kind of emphasis on these things. And so that's really what the emphasis is, is here in Genesis. And so in verse 22, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So this is interesting here with um, Tubal-Cain, the forger of all impl implements of bronze and iron. From reading a bunch of Hebrew commentators, they believe that these, the forger of bronze and iron was probably very, very closely related to, to weapons of war. So we see Lamech and his connection to these instruments of war. We're going to look at this, this uh, poetry, which uh, Hebrew, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. It may have been a song that um, Lamech is going to sing. And in some Hebrew context, it calls it the, the song of the sword. And again, there's some Hebrew context I won't get into where some people have gone on to say that it could have very well been the way that the language is describing what Lamech's about to sing in a minute with him swinging the sword over his head. Okay, so I'm setting you up because you're I, I, getting ahead of myself a little bit. But let's look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, I know I want to put this down here. Lamech, he is seven, oops, seven from there, and then Enoch is seven here. Okay, we're going to see a contrast in a little bit. So Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. And if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, as he's swinging his iron and a sword over his head. So this guy's like larger than life. He's you know, a lunatic, all right? Takes two wives. He's obviously filled with lots of, lots of testosterone. And he's like, if Cain's going to be avenged seven, me 70 times seven. So he's, he is this, this warrior kind of guy who's nuts. And we don't see any kind of reason to see he is a follower of God. There's no indication of that whatsoever. And so here we have Lamech, and he's... Uh, slinging his sword over his head, bragging to his wives that he's going to kill somebody, right? Who even just touches him, basically. And if God is going to do this work on Cain, of avenging Cain and keeping him safe, how much more so am I going to avenge those who touch me? So here you see the degradation of sin, right? It's getting worse and getting worse. And we're, soon we're going to look at the contrast on the other side of things. Um, Adam, verse 25 had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. 
where she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is interesting. We have Enosh here. Then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. There, I spent a lot of research going through different Hebrew idioms and, and different phrases and so on and so forth, and I, I won't bore you with all those details. It's pretty fascinating to look at it yourself. But um, anyway, uh, there's a lot of interesting thoughts in what this means when it says men called upon the name of the Lord. There's even some uh, translations that say the men begin to profane the name of the Lord. Um, but most conservative Hebrew scholars that I've read all agree that it is men called upon the name of the Lord. And what this meant specifically is that what they believe, it was a call to a specific congregational community calling upon the name of the Lord. It wasn't just a one individual. You know? So prior to this, we see a history, undoubtedly, of, the, of what God had done through creation and the Garden of Eden and all these things being passed on and they would talk about what God had done and, and God was communicating to other people. We're going to look at how God spoke to Enoch and some others. Um, but what happened was this relationship with God and understanding their creator um, may not have been as focused on the congregation. So they, many, like I said, conservative Hebrew scholars would say that this is a moment in which there was a congregational calling upon God together as a community which is really pretty interesting, okay? So Enosh uh, represents, is speaking in his generations when they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, chapter 5, this, am I going too fast? No, I no. Okay, because I am saying lots of information that's probably new to a lot of people, so don't hesitate to stop me and ask questions, you guys, especially this style of teaching, because it's, it's more of an instructional kind of academic stuff, so please stop, and, stop me and ask questions at all, if you have any at all. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, and he created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. This is another example of Hebrew um, poetry. So in Hebrew, it's pretty common to tell a story and then retell it, just like we do uh, in, in much of our poetry as well. But that was a very common, common way of doing it. And they would... God or the people of whatever, uh, the Hebrews, would uh, say something, generally go back and hit specifics. And they would also use puns in the different words that they used. And so it's really fun when you start looking at some of these names and these genealogies and how you change one letter or one accent on the letter and it totally changes the word around. And we do that in our language too, right? And so there's some really fun stuff that you could look at here. And so if anyone else wants to do more research into this, I can give you some good resources to look at some of the really fun Hebrew stuff going on there. But for the sake of time and stuff, there's just no way I can spend time looking at all of these. But so here God in chapter 5, this Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this retelling, brief retelling of the creation of man. And so he's reminding them of God's creation of man. So he's calling them back again in this early part of chapter 5 to remember that God did this work, okay? And so in verse 3 now, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And then the days of, of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
And Seth lived 105 years, and he became the father of Enosh. And then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. And then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalel. And then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. And then Mahalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years, and he became the father of Enoch. And then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And then we get to Enoch. Really interesting character here. So any, Enoch is the seventh from Adam, just as Lamech is the seventh from Adam. Which is interesting, because in this genealogy here, we have a, a, a more detailed account of the life of Lamech than the other Canaanites. And now we come to Enoch. And Enoch gets a, a more detailed account and the genealogy here coming from Seth. They're both the seventh from Adam. So, isn't that interesting how God and his Holy Spirit designed this? So here we have a serious divergence from following God with Lamech and his crazy, you know, vengeance craziness. And then you got Enoch. Why? What's special about Enoch? Well, let's look. Now, again, remember, there's two Enochs, okay? This is the Enoch on this side, not the Enoch on this side. Different Enoch. And there's two Lamechs. We're going to look at Lamech in a little bit on the, on the good side, okay? So it's two, two, Lamech, two Lamechs and two Enochs. And so Enoch lived for 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. So I was like, what, what is this? Oh, this mean. Okay, Enoch was raptured, basically. Okay, there was someone else who says that they walked with God. Anybody know who that was? Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. As a matter of fact, going back to the Garden of Eden, the scripture says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden, right? So Enoch was taken by God. He never died, never tasted death. And so as we're going through these genealogies, we hear this person dies, and this person dies, and this person dies. We get to Enoch, and all of a sudden it's like, he didn't die. God took him. There's somebody else who God took that didn't die. Remember who that was? Didn't taste death? That was Abraham. You got it? It was a... Um, it was You're close, a... Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He got caught up on a whirlwind up to heaven and never tasted death. We have another guy that, that tasted death twice, Lazarus, right? But he was risen from the dead. So here we have this really interesting thing going on with Enoch. Um, should we get into the preacher rapture stuff? <laughs> We're probably going to tackle that some other time. But um, we see in Enoch what we believe is a prefiguring of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which talks about the, the, um, we, this corruptible should put out incorruptibility. This, um, 
mortalship went on immortality and that we're going to be uh, taken up in the twinkling of an eye. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the same thing, that those who are alive and remain shall not prevent those who have gone before. And, and the, uh, the last trump and the trump of God, the voice of the archangel, that Christ will, will bring us up to heaven. So here we have Enoch prefiguring this rapture of God's people up to glory. Now, how we've got different ideas of eschatology here, so I'm not going to quite go into how it all works out. But we know clearly that there's something unique about Enoch, and that he walked with God, and God took him. He had a unique relationship with God. And so let's look at what the Scripture has to say about Enoch, okay? So if you would like to, you can turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read a few verses in it. So why don't we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at the next mention of Enoch. So the writer of Hebrews in this, in this famous chapter is giving us examples of great uh, men and women of faith. And, uh, oh, oh, I thought I said one of the videos. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, verse 3 I'm going to start with, okay? Because by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that, which is seen was, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, but by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And where did that faith come from, by the way? Did, did Abel just drum up this faith? No, it was a gift of God, like reading Romans, right? And maybe who was teaching on, on, I think it was Tim, it might have been Mark teaching the Romans, on the gift that God gives us of faith. And so here God gives Abel faith, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying by his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So here you have Enoch, just this little guy in this genealogy going way back, who comes up, pops up in Hebrews, and he gets a few verses here. More so than some of these other heroes of faith. And so Enoch has this gift of faith that God has given him, that has given us for those who are calling upon God. And God says there was something unique about this guy. He didn't taste death. Now, he was a prophet. How do we know he's a prophet? Anybody have any guesses? He's mentioned again in the scripture. Anybody know where? Oh, there you go. Turn over to Jude then. So turn over to Jude, a few books to the right. And we're going to look at what Jude has to say about Enoch, which is some pretty... Pretty fascinating stuff here. So Jude, Jude chapter 10. No, I'm joking. There's only one chapter. Okay, Jude, looking at verse 14. Um, Jude, the prophet here, has a lot to say about ungodliness. He mentions it over and over again, the false prophets and false teachers and God's wrath that's going to be visited upon them. And so in the spirit of that, he brings up another prophet who's calling out false prophets and and it was also in verse 14 about it, it was also about these men that enoch in the seventh generation from adam prophesied and said behold the lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers finding fault and following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gain and advantage. So here Enoch is actually speaking of the Lord coming with thousands of his saints or his holy ones to execute judgment. So this is an actual future prophecy that's going to be part of when Christ comes again and establishes his reign on the earth. That's, that's prophesied over and over again in many Old Testament scriptures. Um, when he establishes his, 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 um, his reign and he's going to execute wrath. So this is wild. Enoch is talking about the return of Christ before even the first advent may have, may have not really been that known to Enoch. Now, Enoch could have had more information than, than we know he did, but at any rate, here he is prophesying of the Christ's return to the earth to execute judgment. This is wild stuff, right? I mean, it's just this little guy mentioned this genealogy, but there's so much centered around Enoch, which is really interesting because then it brings up this whole issue of uh, him being the antitype to, um, or the type, I should say, to the church, and how or the, the believers are going to be taken up to heaven with the Lord. So go back to Genesis now. And we're going to look at uh, verse 25. And come to an interesting character named Methuselah. Now Methuselah, if you look on your chart here, okay, Methuselah would have been the grandfather of of uh, Noah. And so he was chilling with Adam for like 230 years ish. So this guy had a, he had a pretty decent relationship with great, 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 great grandpa Adam. Did I get that right? Something like that. So these guys had pretty close relationships. Okay. And Methuselah is named by um, his father, Enoch. Interestingly enough, Enoch chooses a really interesting name for his, his son. Anybody know what it means? His death shall bring. It's like, what? <laughs> so anytime this kid, I'm stealing this joke, it's not original to me, but uh, anytime this kid, Methuselah, is walking around with the sniffles, the parents are like, oh no, what's, what's his death going to bring? <laughs> Quick, get his temperature down, right? I mean, if he stubbed his toe, if, you know, as everyone's worried, oh, oh no, Methuselah is about to die. So every time he's got a, a sniffle, everyone's worried, okay? Because who knows what his death is going to bring? Now, it's my guess, not just my guess, but scholars guess as well, that again, there's much more information that God passed down to the antediluvians that we're privy to, okay? So there was a whole lot more happening with God and communicating his people probably about Messiah and so on and so forth. Now, it wasn't God's will. The Holy Spirit did not inspire any other writing for us to be able to know exactly what that was, but there was other stuff going on. Obviously, because Methuselah, his name being when he comes, or when he dies, or his, excuse me, his death, when he dies, his death shall bring. And so, Guess what happens in the year that Methuselah dies? Anybody got any guesses? If you look at your chart, you can answer it without even guessing. The flood. Who said that? There. You know, got all the answers today, Nate. So the flood. Yeah. So the flood comes in the year that Methuselah dies. Anybody know who is the oldest, longest living man recorded in Scripture? Methuselah. So as long as Methuselah was alive, God's judgment would be spared on the earth. What does that say? Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, that's God's grace. The longest living man is an example of God's grace before his judgment. These things are so fun to look into, aren't they? It's just exciting when you see that. I mean, Enoch named his son Methuselah. I mean, it's like, wow, what kind of crick? Can you imagine living under, like, Father Enoch? I mean, it's like, 
damn, why do you have to, why are you so harsh? You're crazy. You're that, I mean, like, I don't really want this name. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to live under. But still, at the same time, you have this amazing work of grace that God has given us and that his name is, is the longest lived guy in scripture and his, his, he represents grace. So let's get back to um, the text here in Genesis again in chapter 5. Um, verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Now this is a, the good Lamech, not the bad one. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now, he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, um... I'm not going to get into too many details with some of these things here because we're going to be addressing some of that as we go through Genesis. Tim and I are getting together and trying to figure out how we're going to map out the teaching and go through Genesis because there's so much stuff that's important to cover, especially in light of academic attacks against the veracity of Scripture, right? We want to be prepared for those attacks. And one of those is these long-lived ages. Um, there is a lot of criticism in the Scripture um, of the Scripture by uh, historians and archaeologists saying these are fanciful ages, and they'll compare other um, A-N-E records, which stands for Ancient Near East, A-N-E records that mention Sumerian kings living to be 10,000 years and, and these other things. They say, oh, see, the Bible is just like all these other ones. is full of mythical tales. Well, we know <laughs> by faith that God has given us that we can trust the Word of God, right? But it's interesting, if you look, um, uh, this is book that I have is by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. Um, he's, his commentary on Genesis is relatively new. He's got some really, really interesting insights. And he focuses a lot on apologetics issues, especially when it comes to biology and flood things. And um, I, I probably am not going to read it for the sake of time, but I'm going to open this up. If you guys want to read a few paragraphs out of this, and he talks about how very likely um, it is why, what, excuse me, what genetic reason makes it likely that these guys could have lived for a very long time? And this is also pretty recent research that's been done with genetics. And scientists still do not understand why we age or why our cells die. But they have some indication based upon something called telomerase. Um, uh, Lisa's going to, you know, with her advanced uh, medical degree, is, can, can help you out there. But, uh, but no, seriously, if you're interested in biology, read it. It's really interesting. Um, we don't need science to validate our faith, okay? <laughs> we really don't. But as Christians, we do need to think deeply and when our faith is challenged and there appears to be a contradiction with clear science and scripture, then we should be ready to give an answer, a defense for the answer that, that, and the hope that Christ gives us, right? We don't want to just dismiss these things. And so this is why it's good to think deeply about these issues. And uh, to you younger people and anyone here for that matter, but especially to you teens and uh, college-age students, do not be afraid to think deeply and have deep questions about scripture. Every question, not every question, but the vast majority of questions will be answered. You don't have to worry about it. I, I remember as a teen, I got nervous when I read some things, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this country, the Bible, what if my faith is, is not real? 
And by God's grace, it was amazing how the Lord like instantly would just be like, nope. And just I was like, this is ridiculous. Can't I didn't believe sense. it. You can't make sense, sense of science without faith. Amen. Yeah, and it, yeah it's, t you did a great teaching, Tim, that we have on the website on worldviews, which is really fantastic months ago. Check that one out for you guys that haven't been with us long. And actually, Tony Bartolucci, about a year ago, when we were at Clarkson, did an amazing teaching on that same thing on worldviews. Um, but yeah, you can't make sense apart from, the, from faith in God's word. We won't go down that direction too much, but... Um, yeah, so that's, I kind of want to end it there. Um, there's other stuff I want to share, but there's just no way I'm going to have time to get through that. So um, let's just wrap it up uh, real quickly with this teaching here. I don't want to leave this on a totally academic note. Um, I just want to bring attention to some of the devotional aspects of, of the text, looking at what God has done. I mean, God... He's, he's this one line at one sense, we don't see God interrupting the sin. If God's not come into our lives to interrupt the path that we are on, the path that Sam was on and Kathy was on, and these guys got saved within a matter of weeks of each other, right? Kathy, a few months ago, as her house, shared her testimony, and so it's cool hearing your testimony, Kathy, and how filling in the blanks with Sam. And, you know, Sam, you had mentioned how when the pastor had mentioned you can't be unequally yoked, and you, didn't, and you didn't even have to be a believer, and you didn't even know what the past, pastor assumed that you were a Christian because you're going to the church to sing, and, and she wasn't even saved. And, but God said, nope, I'm going to save you. <laughs> I'm going to save you, Kathy. I'm going to save you, Sam. And he worked it out sovereignly that you guys got I mean, that's a, it's such a neat testimony. These guys got saved in a matter of weeks while they're about to get, become, I don't know, become uh, Married, it's so cool. Well, what was so funny is he didn't want to marry unequally yoked, but he didn't know that we were. <laughs> I mean, we were yoked, and then not. I mean, it was just funny. The irony yeah. is really wild. I know. He's like, do you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And he's talking to him, and I'm like, what's that? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, you've been in the church for two years. You're singing the worship team. We thought you were fully firmly. Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so here the Lord interrupts our, our lineage, our seed, basically, and it's like, I'm going to save you. And so it's just so good that, that he saved us. I mean, what are we going to do, right? We didn't drum up the faith. Abel didn't drum up faith. Enoch didn't drum up faith. He didn't create it in of himself. He didn't make some decision, I'm going to do this. Paul the Apostle is on his way to persecuting the church, breathing out threatenings, as it says in the King James. He's wanting to throw him in jail, and suddenly he's ready to just get these Christians. The Lord just takes them down struck blind here's a voice from heaven paul was not like lord i'm really trying to search you come speak to me no god interrupted his plans completely some of us have had seriously dramatic testimonies like that i know my testimony is kind of dramatic like that too as a teenager and uh, we're going to be sharing our testimonies more and more which is cool but so anyway god interrupts our plans he came into our lives and we, we didn't ask him to do it he did it because of his grace and his love and his mercy and how good he is to his people so Cool stuff here in Genesis uh, chapter 4 and 5. I know it's a little more academic than normal, um, but I trust uh, Brother Mark will give us a good devotional through the, the uh, communion time. But uh, let's, let's uh, close in prayer and uh, for the teaching and ask the Lord to bless the communion. Father, we thank you for your word and, and the intricacies of it and how these fascinating details all work out. It's, it's fun, it's exciting, it's neat, and at the same time, it's, it's very sweet and meaningful and deep and... and uh, it's relational, and you're a relational God, Father. I mean, we just love you, Yahweh, for the, the work that you do and the, the Trinitarian nature that you are. 
and each person of the of the Trinity is doing a unique work in our lives. And we thank you for everything that you're doing, Lord. We pray you continue to bless our fellowship with we as we break bread, Lord. We ask and pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So I thought I was doing a communion, or did we change that? No, we didn't. I'm sorry. I, 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 we don't usually double up. I just assume Mark was doing communion because <laughs> you did. Well, you better do it when you're done. Now you just, now you just <laughs> signed up. So we got the elements up there. Um, so I'm just going to read a passage from the uh, Gospel of John. John chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verses 53 through 68. John 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if, you, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh has, is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's, I just, meditating on this passage this morning, it's, just, it's almost like Jesus was trying to drive people away. He's emphasizing this idea, you're eating my flesh, you're drinking my blood. And he says it repeatedly in multiple ways, like he was trying to make people uncomfortable. This was no seeker-sensitive message he was putting forth. He wasn't trying to not offend people to keep them in the pews. No, he was putting forth, he wasn't altering truth, he was speaking truth. But he was speaking it in such a way that it was veiled to those who would be easily offended and walk away. He was separating the, the wheat from the chaff. Those 
who were chosen by God, those who the Spirit of God was drawing, would say, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why he says that unless it is granted you by the Father, no one can come unto me. So we hear the testimony today from Sam of, of the work of God, that grace that draws us unto him, even though we have no interest prior to that of coming unto God. We want to live for the flesh, but the flesh profits nothing. So I just found this is a powerful picture of, of God's grace that he wasn't afraid to offend um, with the truth. He was speaking the truth. The true flesh, the true blood that he was talking about is, is spiritual in the sense that it, it's not the, the physical aspect that we eat that is, it makes us, gives us eternal life. It's what that bread and that grape juice or that wine represents, the true blood and flesh that was shed for us on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this glorious truth that you have revealed to us in your word, the glorious truth that is confirmed in our, in our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit that indwells us, you who have drawn us, who chose us from before the foundation of the earth and have drawn us unto you by your grace, though we were sinful, blasphemous rebels, Lord God, and you who went to that cross and suffered such a horrible death, you who were sinless, you who spoke the universe into existence. You came in and into the world and died on that cross that we may have eternal life, that we would eat of this spiritual food, this spiritual drink, and live forever. So, Father, I thank you for that glorious grace. And, Lord, I just pray that each of us would take this time now to meditate upon the sin that still is existing in our lives that we would give those things unto you before we take of this. And thank you, Lord God, for, for the grace that you have shown us, though we are being sanctified, Lord. We are being changed from within. We are still falling way short of that perfection that Christ lived out for us. So, Father, I thank you for that glorious grace, that glorious work that you are doing in each of us. We pray you'd be glorified now as we meditate upon that uh, uh, great savings, sacrifice you made for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you will come up and uh, the bread and the, the one with the rubber band is, is the wine. The one without the rubber band is the grape juice. Do the intinction where we dunk it. Intinction. Intinction.